This podcast was recorded on the date indicated with the link. The views and opinions expressed herein are as of the date recorded and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities. Such views and opinions may differ from those of DoubleLine Capital or its affiliates and are subject to change without notice. DoubleLine has no obligation to provide updates or changes. Hello, everybody. Today is Tuesday, August 30th, 2022. I am Jeff Sherman, co-host of The Sherman Show, along with my co-host, Sam Lau. Hey, hey. And today we have a very special guest uh, who is coming to us from our YouTube channel as well. So those of you listening on to your podcast medium, if you would like to watch the video of this and see Sam and I's attempt at trying to bring some fashionable attire uh, to the podcast today, uh, you can go to youtube.com backslash Capital. Uh, we do disable the comments, so you can't make too much fun of us. If you want to do that, you have to use shermanshow at doubleline.com and send us an email the old school way. So today, we have the special guest, as I mentioned. He is Alan Sukolitsky, and Alan is the Chief Investment Officer of Masterworks. Uh, for those of you not familiar with Masterworks, it is the leading art investment platform for self-directed investors. Uh, Alan, welcome to the show. All right. Thanks so much for having me. So, Alan, first of all, let's uh, let, let's uh, tell our listeners about yourself. Just uh, step into this. You know, uh, how did you get involved with Masterworks? What left you on a on a career down this path? Yeah, so um, I spent the vast majority of my career uh, in traditional investment management. Uh, so you can basically think of that as everything in the investment world, excluding art. Um, <laughs> I uh, I spent. Uh, earlier in my career uh, at uh, at Citigroup, and then I spent the bulk of it after that at uh, Goldman Sachs. Uh, basically, my my roles revolved around macroeconomic research, asset allocation modeling. Um, I would publish research on you know the merits of different asset classes for inclusion in a portfolio at different points in time, uh, and then I would travel around and and present those views as well. So. That's basically what, what I spent most of my career doing. And, and so it is sort of an interesting question. How did I end up here at Masterworks, uh, you know, ultimately making art an investable asset class? And the interesting thing is that I think there's a direct connection between what I used to do and how I ended up here, because I spent my whole career researching what I thought was every asset class under the sun, right? It's all the asset classes that many investors are familiar with, stocks, bonds, commodities, hedge funds, private equity, real estate, venture, literally everything. And so it's one of those things where you have this strange light bulb moment all of a sudden in the middle of your career where you come across this idea and you're like, wait a minute, how come I never thought about that before? What does that actually mean? So I, I had come across Masterworks, heard that they were investing in the art market, and that started to make the light bulbs go off in my mind where I got more curious and I thought, how big is the asset class? What does performance look like? You know, all these questions that I could have readily answered for every other asset class I had ever researched, all those questions started popping into my head. That's when I started to research it more and, and become more interested in what Masterworks was ultimately doing. Well, I think as you think about the art world too, it's all it, it historically has been associated with those in the upper echelons of the wealth demographic, right? Uh, you think of very wealthy collect collectors, whether they're 
you know, magnates out there, um, you know, whether they're, uh, they're on a ban list today because they have so much wealth. But if you think about it too, you know, it is something where wealthy investors over time have used it to help diversify out. So, you know, a, a lot of people want to talk about getting access to retail or individual investors. They talk about the democratization of an asset class or of a strategy. Is that how you think about, um, you know, the Masterworks approach? Is that, you know, giving access to more folks? Is it, you know, just showing people that, you know, again, uh, small pieces to their allocation can be quite helpful? How, how do you think about that? I, I think there is a pretty significant element of democratizing the asset class that that goes along with what we're doing. Um, but I also, you know, again, and this is my background, because remember, I spent most of it in traditional investment management. I always think about everything I'm doing now in the context of all of that. And so I can't help but say, you know, if you think about how other illiquid asset classes evolved over time in terms of who was primarily investing in them originally and how that changed, so let's talk about, let's say, private equity or hedge funds or real estate, venture capital. Those asset classes started to get invested in several decades ago. They were illiquid. And who were the primary investors? They were pretty much ultra high net worth and institutional. And it kind of stayed that way for a very long time until more recent history, where those asset classes started to become more readily accessible to broader segments of the investor population. But that whole process took several decades to actually happen. With us, when we launched Masterworks, we basically started out from the beginning making this otherwise illiquid asset class available to a significant portion of the investor population. So we didn't go along the same path that all of the other illiquid asset classes did, primarily ultra high net worth and institutional, and then eventually becoming retail focused. We kind of started out securitizing the asset class, offering it to self-directed investors from the outset. Okay. And so, you know, I, I hear securitization within there, right? So you're, you're issuing something backed by this collateral. So can you tell us a little bit about how you guys approach, you know, what to invest in? Does it, does it need to be a Picasso? Does it have to be a, you know, a well-known artist? Are, are you trying to look at burgeoning trends too? Um, I think about some of the popularity across the auctions this year. Um, how do you think about building that portfolio yep. and creating? Because it's going to behave quite differently, right? Uh, there's different kind of capitalization ranges. You know, uh, again, yeah. it, put it put it in the framework of a traditional asset allocator, and 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 walk me through some of that analysis. Yeah. So, um, I mean, this this might take a minute or two to explain, but I, I do think it's kind of important. Um, so. I'll take a step back for a moment. A lot of us who have worked in financial services, um, you pretty much always have a need for data of some kind when you're working in the world of finance. Now, whenever you need that data, you go to any number of major data providers. All of the big banks, the financial institutions, they all have the uh, data providers that they're typically accustomed to using. But the point is, all of that data is available to financial services professionals uh, in some way, shape, or form. But here's the thing. Despite the fact that all of that data is available within the realm of finance, there has not exactly been a place where all of the art market information has ever been available. So what Masterworks had to do, one of its first projects when we started as a business several years ago, we actually hired several dozen analysts and their job was quite literally to go through thousands of auction catalogs, many of them were in paper format, 
and they took every single transaction from every page in all of those thousands of catalogs and they put all of that data into a computer. We have since built what I like to call, using an analogy, I call it, we've built Bloomberg for the art market, except that there's a big difference between what Bloomberg does and what we do. Bloomberg ultimately sells licenses for its data. That's how all of us access a Bloomberg terminal. With us, this proprietary database that we built is just that, it's entirely proprietary. So nobody else has access to this data. So we basically have roughly 70 years worth of transaction history in the art market in our proprietary database. Hundreds of thousands of transactions. We track many thousands of artists. And what we do with that data is we ultimately analyze it to decide what areas of the art market should we invest in. So a lot of those sort of analytical projects that analysts on Wall Street will engage in when they might be thinking about individual stocks to buy or whatever other you know, uh, investment they might be involved in, we are effectively doing the same thing except for the art market and except that we're the only ones with access to that data. So the first half of our process is entirely quantitatively data driven. That's the first half of the process. That's how we determine who are the artists that we're interested in investing in and within that, what are the specific series that an artist might have painted that we want to invest in? And within that, what are the particular paintings within a series that the artist uh, invested in? So we're analyzing that data to kind of filter through our universe to determine where to invest. And then the second half of our uh, investment process, that's driven by uh, an acquisitions team. These are individuals that all that have all of what you would think of as kind of traditional art market experience. They come from the major auction houses, the dealers, the galleries. So basically they're working off of that initial sort of data driven process of filtering the investment universe down. And then they go out and use their global network to ultimately source the different paintings that we're interested in investing in. So within there, actually, as you were, we're talking about the selection of these based on quantitative measure, you know, uh, Jeff and I come from the fixed income world. And a lot of times we hear about story bonds, you know, on paper, the bonds might not look great, but they've got a fabulous story behind them. That kind of that X factor where it's unquantifiable, but it's qualitative judgment around yep. it. I would imagine that kind of the objectivity and subjectivity when it comes to looking at art really is hard to, to parse through, right? It's especially the ones that, you know, come to the, something like Masterworks from a fa you know, finance background versus one that might come in from an art background that is more in tune with the art side of things. Yep. How does that kind of play into it when you're talking about, I mean, do you just focus on the big names or are there people who you're looking at, you're just like, okay, I see this art, maybe they're trending on social media. I think this might be a big, uh, you know, a rising trend, a superstar, throw it into the, the portfolio type of thing. But how does that all get melded together, I suppose? Yeah. So um, it, every, basically everything that I'm going to tell you about what we focus on, maybe what we don't for all of this, I'll, I'm going to caveat it by saying it's driven entirely by the data. So the area of the art market that we focus on, first off, is specifically post-war and contemporary art. Now, uh, if you want to divide the art market overall into different segments, you can think of post-war and contemporary art as one segment, impressionist modern art would be another segment, and old masters paintings, you know, let's say along the lines of a Rembrandt, that would be another segment. So the segment we focus on is post-war and contemporary art. 
That's the segment that has been appreciating for the last several decades at roughly 14% annualized. So um, by comparison, uh, um, uh, Impressionist and Modern Art has been appreciating at roughly, let's call it seven, seven and a half percent annualized and old masters paintings, quite honestly, uh, they usually appreciate more or less in line with the rate of inflation. Uh, so let's say one to two percent, excluding recent history, of course, on inflation. Um, but so the segment we focus on is post-war and contemporary. Within that, and this is again driven entirely by the data, we generally buy paintings that are between one and $30 million. And there's a reason for that. So the paintings that typically sell for less than a million dollars, now I'm not gonna say that that million is a hard and fast rule. We can, let's call it 500,000 to a million. Anything that's trading under that is what I like to call the venture capital of art investing. So in other words, there's a whole lot of volatility that you might experience based on whatever paintings you're gonna buy in that segment of the market. That's not the level of volatility or risk that we thought was reasonable to be offering to our investors. And once you go over $30 million for a painting, the, uh, the performance or the, or the price appreciation of those paintings over time actually falls significantly. Not in the sense that they become negative. I just mean the performance might be, let's call it low to mid single digits, which you know might or might not be attractive for uh, uh, a large number of investors. So the segment that we focus on, in other words, sort of our sweet spot, is kind of that one million to thirty million dollar range. Now there will be a lot of um, uh, a lot of big name artists. Uh, we we like to focus on what we call blue chip artists. These are artists that generally have names that you would recognize. Um, but it is more often than not driven by the data than it is necessarily just picking an artist that has a big name and wanting to invest there. In fact, now, you know, now that I'm saying this, I, I just realized I could give you a good example. Damien Hurst, that's an artist who has a pretty uh, a widely known name. Uh, Damien Hurst often has works that sell for many millions of dollars. But what a lot of investors and a lot of, uh, honestly, art collectors may not immediately appreciate is that Damien Hurst, as a market, actually has a sharp ratio close to zero. Now, by the way, if you're wondering, how is he even talking about sharp ratios for an artist in the first place? Well, again, it all goes back to our database, right? So you can imagine that the same way that you have data for stocks or the S&P 500 or anything else, with that data, you can calculate a sharp ratio. Well, with all of the data that we have for all the different artists and paintings in our database, we too can calculate sharp ratios. So Damien Hurst is just one example of a big name artist who we would not necessarily be interested in buying. And his, uh, his sharp ratio for his market is quite literally close to zero. In fact, I, I think it is actually just slightly negative to be exact. Yeah, well, maybe people just don't like a bunch of dots on a page, you know, um, you know, I think the affinities went with Kusama these days, like she she's known for the dots these days, right? She's very popular. Um, so so let's let's get a little bit deeper into that as well. So you identify, you know, this concept of the sharp ratio, right? And you're, you're trying to assess historical kind of return per unit of risk, however you're, you're categorizing that. Yep. Um, and so as you think about it, too, you know, how do you how do you get comfortable with this? Because I would expect to see, you know, as some uh, popularity of an artist take off, it goes very exponential very quickly and kind of that value gets kind of sucked out of it. So how do you think about, there's obviously the ability to buy an asset, 
But what do you talk about on the investment discipline to sell assets as well? So walk us through that. Yeah, so on on the buying side, I mean, the, you know, the the description you just gave about an, an artist, let's say, who who all of a sudden starts to take off, that is more applicable to artists who are painting earlier in their careers. That's going to be more more along the lines of the segment that I was talking about. That was call it under the five hundred to a million dollar realm, which is not an area that we would be the most comfortable investing in. Um, we're not necessarily exploring the venture capital of art investing, at least at this point in time. Um, but so the the artists that we invest in, what's interesting to note in the art market is that trends in the art market tend to stay in place in the art market for many years at a time. Um, you can think of this somewhat along the lines of almost maybe kind of like a momentum strategy. If I were to use that term in the traditional investment world, it's it's somewhat along those lines, except that in the art market, those trends quite literally can stay in place for many years, right? So, so an artist who might have a series that has generally been appreciated uh, by collectors and investors around the world for some period of time, that series will probably continue to be appreciated attractively uh, by investors for a longer period of time. Same thing might take place on the flip side, right? If an artist painted a series that was maybe during a, a sort of um, uh, less opportune period of that artist's life, maybe the, the work that that artist painted at that time has not sort of been appreciated quite as favorably by a lot of collectors and investors, that series probably will remain relatively unattractive for longer periods of time as well. So these trends tend to stay in the market for, for quite some time. Um, and then on the sales side, uh, you know, I, uh, uh, I can't help but, uh, but mention that just a few months ago, uh, we actually hired um, uh, an individual who was the now former head of Bank of America's art services uh, business. Uh, Bank of America basically had the art, uh, largest art services, has the largest art services business in the U.S. Um, and so we uh, we hired the now former head of their business specifically uh, to focus on the dispositions process. Dispositions, fancy way of saying selling the art. Um, and so our our thinking is basically given the role that he was in for so many years, he probably has a very extensive network globally uh, of collectors and individuals that he was engaging in uh, in the art market. So ultimately, when when we're going to be uh, continuing to sell paintings over time, which we've, we've already sold a, a whole bunch of them so far, but we're obviously going to continue doing that over time. He's going to be heading up that uh, that dispositions process. It's funny you say that just um, just anecdotally. Um, I got a call from someone who's a client of ours. I'm also a client of them at Bank of America. And she's like, hey, I happen to be in your neighborhood tomorrow. Uh, I need to appraise this art because we have a big loan against it. So uh -huh. she was actually going to, she herself was not, she's a company, the appraiser. It's just kind of funny you mentioned uh -huh. that. So yeah. Uh, anyway, I think Sam, Sam's a big fan of like momentum-based investing. So Sam, you got anything on that as you think about uh, kind of the, the art world? Yeah, I was trying to put it more into the context of how people should think about it. Let's just say we go down the route with um, the democratization of, of, uh, of the space in terms of being able to purchase and then, you know, who would think about buying it, you know, getting access to these types of uh, um, assets, you know, that normally wouldn't, but where would it fit within someone's, I guess, greater, you know, more diversified yeah. portfolio? I'm just trying to get a sense of, you know, we think about equities as, as behaving a certain way within an economic yep. cycle, bonds yep. the other way, but where would it fit within that type of portfolio? So what type of environment has art historically done well? 
whereas it suffered? What drives some of those inflection points in the momentum or the trend? Yeah. Um, so art, let me put it simply by saying art has the most unique correlation profile of any asset class that I have ever seen in my career. I want to be real direct and upfront about that from the outset. So um, if you measure arts correlation to any other major asset class, I'm talking about large caps, small caps, the ag, international bonds, emerging market debt, local emerging market debt, private equity, hedge funds, come on. I mean, literally all of the major asset classes, the correlation of art to any of them is consistently close to zero. And that is extraordinarily unique because usually if you ever look at the correlation of any asset class, any major asset class to other asset classes, you usually see the same pattern, which is inevitably you're going to have a low correlation to something and you're probably going to have a higher correlation to something else. I'm not knocking or criticizing any other major asset class. It's simply sort of a statement of fact. That's the world we live in. It's a mixed bag. But with art, it quite literally has a consistently near zero correlation to any asset class that you measure it against. What that tells you by definition is no matter what you might already have in your portfolio, adding that art allocation to the portfolio is going to be a pretty good diversifier precisely because it's not correlated to anything else in your portfolio. Now, in, in terms of um, in terms of the, the portfolio and let's say sizing, I'll start by saying, uh, by citing external research um, in, in the interest of trying to be as, you know, as objective as possible here. So Citigroup has actually been very forward thinking uh, in their asset allocation modeling in the sense that they've actually uh, been able to include art in their asset allocation work for their ultra high net worth clients. Um, and what their, their own research has basically shown and I'm gonna caveat this properly. So for investors who have the ability to have a portion of their portfolio in illiquid asset classes, right? So that's the caveat. You have to be willing to have a portion in illiquids. They would recommend allocations of from 1.4 to 4% to art. So that's citing external research. Think of it as low to mid single digits for, for art. Um, we've also done some of our own uh, asset allocation work, mostly because I did a lot of this in my prior life. And I, while the way that I wanted to approach it was not so much along the lines of what would an optimized allocation tell you you should have to art. And the reason I did not want to approach it along those lines is because I knew if I'm working at a company that's making art an investable asset class, Right? It's not necessarily the most objective or credible for me to say what an optimized allocation to the art market should be. So what I decided to do instead was to just measure how frequently does a portfolio with art do better than a portfolio without art. And all I did was I worked off of a simple 5% allocation. So when I measured that, and I did it against a basic 60-40 portfolio, I did it against a very well diversified but still liquid portfolio, and I even did it against an endowment portfolio with healthy allocations to illiquid assets. So with all of those different portfolios, I measured if you put art in it, how frequently does it do better? And it turns out in just about 100% of 10 year periods, you will improve your portfolio sharp ratio with that small 5% allocation to art. 
Yeah, no, I mean, that's, it's a very powerful thing too. And, you know, so when you talk about getting, you know, putting together a fund or a strategy uh, for investors, um, you know, how, how do you think about doing that and not becoming kind of that marginal bid to your own self, right? What I mean by that is you're competing against yourself. You're forcing prices up because you have new capital to, to deploy. So how do you stay disciplined and be able to really continue to monetize that high sharp ratio investment? Yeah. The understanding that, you know, it is a finite asset, right? There's, yep. there's a limited number of supply. How do you yep. think about it? Yeah. Well, so, um, you know, it's what it's funny. What that, that question is, it's one of those things where if we ever got to that point, I would consider us to be wildly successful, right? If, if you can ever get to the point where you can move the market ultimately. Um, the interesting thing, though, is so we didn't we didn't talk about this at the beginning. We didn't talk about the size of the art market. So the art market globally is one point seven trillion dollars in size. Now, just to put that into context. Um, if you take a look at uh, uh, the U.S. private equity industry, that's $3.4 trillion in size. So the art market is, let's say, roughly half the size of private equity in the U.S. Now, the reason why I'm using private equity as a point of comparison is because for most investors who have some familiarity with private equity, they would willingly and readily acknowledge that the private equity industry in the U.S. is a very large industry. And so I would argue that anything that's half the size of private equity is probably quite large too. So the art market, $1.7 trillion in size, and, and here's really the kicker though, how many firms are operating in the private equity industry that's $3.4 trillion? You're talking about more than 9,000 firms operating in that space, all competing against each other. How many firms are operating in the $1.7 trillion art market with this sort of approach that we take quantitatively driven, the uh, the analytics, the qualitative, how many institutions out there are doing that for the $1.7 trillion asset class called art? It is effectively masterworks. And so that's sort of a long-winded way of answering your question. You know, how, how do you kind of make sure that you stay disciplined and you're not sort of moving the market, transact? I mean, like I said at the beginning, I would love to say that we get to that point because that would mean that we've essentially you know, securitize the entire $1.7 trillion market. But let's just say that at the point we're at right now, we have just only begun to scratch the surface of that asset class. No, I think that's a legitimate thing to really think about too. And then, you know, as you're, you're talking about, you know, kind of you have a disposition strategy, you have an acquisition strategy, you know, how, how do you think about managing the portfolio, right? Because again, you need to have the monetization. Do you, you approach it from like putting on your PE hat, right? Where you say, okay, once I sell this, it's gone, right? Um, maybe there's not another someone to sell a partial ownership. So how, how do you think about managing your portfolio on the day-to-day, month-to-month, week-to-week process? Yep. So a lot of that, the way it works in the art market, I mean, ultimately, if, you're, if your network of contacts in the art market is significant enough globally, then you start to develop a good understanding over time of, who are the collectors or who are the individuals all over the world that are interested in this particular type of art or maybe that particular type of art. So you start with this understanding of who are all of the entities that I might prospectively and potentially engage with at some point down the line to sell that which we currently own. 
That's so one. Do you talk to a lot of brokers, or, or you know, I, I don't know what they're called in the art world. Obviously, I don't you, have some. Well, you might be re might yeah, be referring yeah. to dealers. Uh, we, dealers. We, okay. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. So yeah. we we have we have uh, connections with a lot of uh, collectors directly all over the world. We also have a lot of uh, uh, um, dealers in our network. Basically, our our network of art market participants globally is about as extensive it could be when you combine the acquisitions team at our firm with the dispositions team and the network that that the the gentleman from bank of america that that uh, that he ultimately brought here that is an enormous network network of global contacts to engage with in the art market so one part of it is knowing who it is that is interested in different types of art and so therefore you can start to think about even you know even the moment you buy a painting you can already start to plan at some point down the line all right who do we know that might have interest in this type of artwork a year or two or three or five years after the fact so that's um uh that's ultimately one element of it but the other element is having a good understanding of what types of art are trending more favorably or less favorably at different points in time, right? So that starts to give you an idea about when it's a more opportune time to sell a particular painting as opposed to maybe holding a bit longer a different type of painting. And, you know, I talked a lot about the, the, the database, the proprietary database that we built, but there's sort of this additional layer of, of kind of uh, um, and data analytics that we have, which is, you know, the, around the world, there are always sort of uh, uh, auctions and, and sort of these art oriented events that take place. And what we do is we actually send individuals to attend all of these events. And while they are there, they are quite literally counting the number of people that are bidding for every item that goes up for sale. And they count that relative to how many people are at that venue in the first place. So what you do, what you're able to do over time, if you start to collect all of that data for a few years, is you start to build a time series, which basically gives you an idea about what we're, we're, we're calling bitter depth, which is a way to understand, okay, does it seem like the market for this type of painting seems to be accelerating or becoming more attractive? Is the market for this other type of painting maybe decelerating or becoming slightly less attractive? So we're basically doing a lot of this kind of mechanical oriented data aggregation, because frankly, there, there really is no other way to do it in the in the art market, at least so far. And we're doing all of that to help inform our purchasing and selling decisions. And, and so ultimately, that helps to uh, uh, it helps to us to decide when is the good time to sell the art. And we've done that several times now. Yeah, Alan, earlier on, you defined kind of your, your potential addressable universe uh, within the, the art space. I don't think you said digital art. And I was just curious as to your thoughts around that, you know, the, the recent trend. Yep. And maybe that point, that hit an inflection point, right? And uh, yeah. seems to have gone the other way around now. But uh, just interested in hearing your thoughts around there, how you guys viewed it. Yeah, so, um, you know, d digital art, NFTs, these, these are questions that um, they seem to come naturally to us precisely because since we're the company that's making art investable, to the extent that digital art can be considered art, it seems like a reasonable question to ask. But what, what we struggle with, with NFTs and digital art is, is actually it's a few things. Um, number one, if you think about what we are doing, we are taking an asset class that has quite literally existed for centuries 
And one of the characteristics of that asset class is that it's real and tangible, right? We're talking about paintings that usually sit in a museum or as a prized possession in someone's home. So we're taking that type of asset class and making it available to investors. Now, you think about NFTs and digital art, number one, well, how long have they existed? Most certainly not centuries. In fact, it's probably more like two years. And on top of that, it's digitally oriented, so it doesn't have that physical kind of tangible element to it that what we're investing does have. So those two big differences make it sort of hard for us to wrap our minds around how and if we should actually make NFTs, let's say, uh, an investable offering that's available through Masterworks. Uh, you know, I, and I have to be candid and tell you that over the last few years, our, our founder has, uh, he's actually, you know, he's, uh, he's been interviewed a whole bunch of times and all along the way, he was kind of expressing a healthy level of skepticism about NFTs and digital art, usually along the lines of, you know, we, we haven't really sorted out exactly how to really, how do you value them? How do you think about them? And quite honestly, I'm not sure anybody has sorted that question out to this day. And nevertheless, when this year started and, uh, you know, crypto was sort of struggling, uh, the NFT market has kind of struggled to say the least. And so we're kind of viewing it as almost, you know, in a lot of ways, the proof, the proof is in the pudding, right? We're taking this real tangible asset class. It's existed for centuries. We're making that investable. It's hard to make the same argument for a two-year-old asset class that's not tangible and kind of exists primarily in the digital realm. Okay, fair enough. Um, you know, I, I did notice how Sam called those digital art, and he did not use the phrase NFTs. Uh, it's funny because I went to an event at the beginning of the year, and you know, with your ticket, you got an NFT. And I noticed I went to another event a couple months later at a very similar venue, and I got a digital art for it. So. Uh, that was after the price collapse of some of these NFTs. So it's funny the uh, the euphemism or just the way we refer to things as well. Um, you know, so I, I guess I kind of as a last question too um, before before we really let you go is you know how do you think about achieving diversification within the art realm? Right, you you have this you know written niche that you said you focus on the post World War II contemporary certain size. How do you achieve that diversification? Is it owning different artists? Is it looking at different trend items? How are you, how is your team building that from a risk management standpoint? Yeah, so ultimately, uh, when, when an individual comes to our website, masterworks.io, they can sign up for an account. Uh, the account is free to sign up. You actually, you get access to um, uh, a reasonable amount of our data that we make available to investors just for signing up on our website. Um, and ultimately what happens is they, they get scheduled uh, for uh, a call with a uh, with an advisor at Masterworks who kind of talks them through the different uh, offerings that we have available at any point in time, the investment merits of each of those offerings, the risks associated with each of those offerings, and they start to give an idea about how you might be able to build a diversified portfolio by investing in a few of those offerings. Um, ultimately, the different paintings that we have available on the website, there are typically, I'm going to estimate and say it's roughly five to 10 paintings available at any point in time. Uh, and we're always adding new paintings to the website uh, as well. So ultimately, investors actually do have very much the ability to build a diversified portfolio of art through us. They, they do it 
uh, initially via conversation with the advisor, but then also once their sort of account is up and running, that they are able to make allocations uh, on their own as well. But I guess I did want to uh, really emphasize that this, uh, this whole first conversation with one of the advisors on our team, it is actually very much along the lines of the conversations that financial advisors often have with their own clients. Right, so you talk about your investment goals, you talk about the risks associated with the investment, you want to make sure that what you're recommending is suitable for the investor that you're talking to. And ultimately, we are doing quite literally the exact same thing, except that we're doing it for investing in, uh, in art as opposed to, you know, the remainder of a portfolio, which is what financial advisors usually do it for. Right, I think that's very helpful too. I mean, you know, it allows people to really you know, kind of getting that, uh, you know, getting that access to an investor that they may not be able to buy, but right. an artist they've been able to buy because uh, they, it's just too big of a, uh, a percentage of their overall allocation. Yep. So exactly. uh, I think it's very helpful. So, you know, Alan, I really want to thank you for spending the time with us today. I think it's very informative. Uh, we're very interested in, in the concepts you guys are bringing to this world. Uh, we think it's really, uh, really innovative and it is a way of truly democratizing. I hear this so much in finance. I think about just getting access to what is usually the ultra wealthies yep. are, are the only people that can participate. I think that truly is a democratization. So, yep. um, you know, for our listeners too, how can they find out more about Masterworks? How can they follow you guys? Um, what's the best avenue for them to contact you guys? Yeah, the, the best way to do it, honestly, is to go to our website. It's masterworks.io. Um, and on our website, you'll see a, a, a link where you can sign up for an account. Like I said, signing up for an account is totally free. Um, you'll have access to the different offerings that we have available. You can take a look at them on your own. Um, you can ultimately get a lot of pricing information. So we have a price database. Investors who are interested in learning about uh, the pricing for lots of different works by lots of different artists. You can look all of that up. We have that capability for uh, investors too. And ultimately you can sign up. You'll have an introductory call with an advisor. They can talk you through the process. Uh, you know, ultimately it's entirely up to you, of course, whether to invest or not. But uh, we, we try to honestly make the process as seamless as possible. Yep. All right, Alan. So again, Alan Sukolitsky, the Chief Investment Officer at Masterworks. So thanks for joining us today, Alan. Thanks so much, guys. Yeah. Hey, but Alan, before I let you go, uh, I'd be remiss. Sam's sitting there smiling. I can see him. And what he wants to do is introduce you to his favorite part of the show. So we got one last segment before we let you leave. Sam? Yeah, I was smiling because it almost seemed like you're about to close. And I thought Alan might be off the hook. I think he did, too. But uh, you're not, Alan. So my favorite part of the show is called Sherman Says. where I will provide a prompt, um, a series of alternating prompts, I should say, between you and Mr. Sherman, to which I'm trying to elicit a top of mind, concise response. And as a first example, I'll pass it off to Sherman for artist or artwork you would like to buy. Twombly, Cy Twombly. All right, over to you, uh, Alan, for yours with art price volatility, volatility of art price. Ten percent. All right, Sherman. Art versus gold. Well, um, you know, you unlike what the Buffett quote was that you can't touch it and fondle it. A lot of that with gold. I think with art, you can really appreciate it too. So I know some people have an affinity for gold; they want to look at it. I know we have an analyst who just loves to stare at his gold lighter, and he's fascinated by gold. But 
um, you know, I, I think it's appreciate the beauty in it too. And to me, there's something about having art that's actually brushstrokes that, you know, when the light hits it and everything, there's just something magnificent about it. Absolutely. Yeah, that was, uh, that problem was courtesy of our, our gold bug too. So as you probably figured there. So art is better uh, irrespective of time frame than gold, you know, but uh, I'll let Alan confirm. Yep. <laughs> All right. Over to you, Alan, with, let's see here. What's the most exciting artwork uh, you or Masterworks has acquired? Uh, I would say our Basquiat paintings. Basquiat is a market that's, uh, that's accelerated uh, pretty attractively for the last few decades. It's a market that we're very favorable on. Jean-Michel oh. Basquiat. All right. Kind of similar to Basquiat, but uh, this is a different type of forum. Let's say Tyson Fury for you, Sherman. What? Tyson Fury. How does that relate to Basquiat? He's an artist in the ring, I guess. Yeah, so it's 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 a similar word, you know. Instead of Basquiat, it's boxing. I mean, they're they're kind Bas of similar. Okay, yeah. all right. I see what you did there. I, okay, I remember seeing there's a Basquiat Warhol the battle, like announcing like a fight. If you remember, they did a joint thing. You've, we've all seen that. That's a famous uh, poster. So I'll give you that. Um, wow, and bring Tyson Fury back. He needs to fight. You can't be this big champion. You got to defend it. Go out on your shield. You know, he's the bad dude. He needs to keep fighting. Yeah, I got to stop uh, waffling a little bit on the, your intentions, I suppose. Not yours, but his. Yeah, right. yeah. Like, I'm retired. I'm not. I mean, you know, every <laughs> fighter does that. No fighter retires the first time. You know, you have to have, like, five retirements. And usually you got to lose before you, uh, you quit. Yeah. Yeah, I get beat out of you, I guess, unfortunately, figuratively and literally. Yeah. Uh, back to you, Alan, with favorite thing to eat and where to get it. Oh, that is so easy. Sushi by far. Sushi is my comfort food. Um, there's a, a restaurant where I live in Connecticut where uh, uh, that's definitely my favorite sushi. But uh, I would say that most really good sushi places in New York City are also my favorites. All right. Sounds good. Anything you don't eat off of the menu? Uh, uni, believe it or not. Yeah, I guess something about gonads is not appealing to everybody, so. Yeah, well, the, the uni is one of those things that, like, it's so distinct that, like, people either love it or hate it, it seems That's like. exactly right. Yeah, I'm usually from the hate it camp, but, yep. uh, you know, out on the West Coast, too, Santa Barbara's got some of the best. And exactly. so, like, you know, um, there's time, if you're, if you're at a high-end place and it's the, you know, the, uh, you know, where you get the fixed setting, I can't think of what it's called off the top of my head. Omakaze. Yeah, if you get that and it shows up, I'll eat it though. So, yep. but I'm not, I never got in my way. Yep. Yeah, it's an acquired taste for sure. All right, Sherman, with you, uh, 1849. And this is an homage to uh, NFL about to start, I suppose, uh, in the week, I've been told. I mean, there was this thing called the gold rush, you know. Um, it happened a little earlier too than that. But uh, are we talking about California history? But yeah, talking about 49ers. Yeah, I know. Yeah, it's, um, you know, I just can't wait for Aaron Rodgers to play the Niners in the playoffs, Sam, and just lose for the, what is it, the fifth consecutive time? So, uh, so Alan, uh, Sam is a Packers fan and my okay. team beats him in the playoffs every, every year, it feels like. Pretty so. much. Yeah. yeah. I don't and know. You guys are still friends. That's feel, good. Yeah. I, I don't know how I feel about Trey Lance. You know, I'm, I'm still a Jimmy G guy. He, He's, he's above median. You would think he's a below median guy as much crap as everybody gives him, but he's not horrible. <laughs> he just can't get the big game. So as I told uh, one of our colleagues, 
We'll just let uh, Jimmy G live up the potential, get him to the Super Bowl, and let Trey win the Super Bowl for him. Yeah. Right? Yep. Anyway. All right, over to you, Alan, with – see, I lost my page here. Trending artist. Uh, I don't want to take that one for obvious reasons that okay. you know, we're, we're constantly <laughs> in acquisition mode. Gotcha. Fair enough. We'll leave it with that. Leave it at that. All right, Sherman, yours, favorite artist. Hmm, that's a tough one. I'll go, I'll go with the cop out and just go with a Van Gogh. I just saw some recently this summer and uh, they're just amazing too. And I, I like to see the evolution of when he started to go a little more mad. And so, for instance, if you see the Starry Night, like that's at the Met, or I'm sorry, the MoMA in New York, and you compare it to the one that's at the Musée d'Orsay in Paris, you just see how his mind changed, right? You can see it in the huge strokes. And so that kind of evolution, unfortunately, we know that he was going mad at the time, but um, just really cool. And I, also, I've uh, I've been to the south of France into his insane asylum where he was, and just yeah. to actually go in that bedroom, you've seen it's mm -hmm. iconic. I just have a connection with that. Like, just it's cool. It's like the reality of things, but blended into this kind of abstract world. So, yep. All right, and you're going to finish us off here, Alan, with uh, your least favorite yet immensely popular artist. Least favorite yet immensely popular. I got, I got one. I got one. What? What's yours? I would use Koontz. I do not like Koontz. You know, so. I don't, I don't, uh, I can't, I can't. You're going to, you're going to, you're going to may upset somebody by saying. Yeah, it just, it, I can't do it. I can't give an answer to that. I just can. All right. Well, you're, uh, let's see here. You're uh, three of five. So that works. Uh, it's close enough. <laughs> it's good. It's yeah. good. Uh, for the Sherman show, we consider that a passing grade. 60% I'll take it. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, I'll take it. it. Yeah. So, um, Alan, th thanks for playing along there. That was, that was good fun. Um, you know, we really appreciate the time. Thanks for telling us more about what Masterworks does, your role there. And again, for those of you that have want more interest, remember that's masterworks.io. Um, if you're sloppy like me and type in masterworks.com though, it does have a redirect. So uh, it'll get you to the right spot as well. So thanks again, Alan. Um, you know, it was a pleasure chatting with you today. Thanks guys. Yep. Thanks again. And that was the latest episode of the Sherman Show. Uh, as mentioned at the top, you can find these at youtube.com backslash double line capital. Uh, you can also get this uh, where your favorite podcasters serve, Google, SoundCloud, Stitcher, iTunes, and other things that Sam won't tell me about today. So again, tune in soon uh, for the next couple of weeks for the latest episode of The Sherman Show. Take care and until then. The audio presentation represents DoubleLine's intellectual property. No portion of this presentation may be published, reproduced, transmitted, or rebroadcast in any media in any form without the expressed written permission of DoubleLine. DoubleLine has no obligation to provide any updates or changes. To receive permission from DoubleLine, please contact media at DoubleLine.com. Neither DoubleLine nor any of its affiliates make any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast. Liability, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage is expressly disclaimed. DoubleLine is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice in this podcast.
The receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by any double line entity or individual to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any double line entity. The portfolio risk management process includes an effort to monitor and manage risk, but does not imply low risk. Copyright 2022, Double Line Capital.